Christopher J. Gervais is a wildlife conservationist, an environmental and marine scientist, and an award-winning wildlife documentary film producer. He's the founder and CEO of the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival, whose mission is to inform, engage, and inspire wildlife conservation through the power of film and media. He is also establishing the Wildlife Conservation Film Foundation to support independent wildlife and nature filmmakers. Christopher J. Jovey and the Wildlife Conservation Film Fest, welcome to the One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Thank you for having me on your podcast. When I heard of your film festival, which I think I'd heard of during my time in the Hamptons, because I know you're also active there and in New York, it seems like such an important thing to have a film festival devoted to wildlife conservation. So I was surprised. I couldn't believe that it didn't exist before you founded it. And was it 2010? 2010, the first two years were, in fact, in the Hamptons in Sag Harbor. And then gradually, as the festival evolved from a one-day event to a two-day event, it then became more and more days. And we decided to move it into Manhattan. And now our flagship event in New York City is a 10-day event, seven to eight days of film screenings. And then we have field trips that range with our partners, such as, say, Gotham Whale, which leads whale watching and marine mammal trips just off the coast of New York City. And then pending the weather, we'll perhaps go to Jamaica Bay National Wildlife Refuge or some other parts, because it's sad, even in New York City, people, when they speak of wildlife, they think of squirrels, rats, and pigeons, and they don't realize that the biodiversity that is there, over 350 species of birds in Central Park and Jamaica Bay, National Wildlife Refuge. And this is one of the reasons why WCFF is uniquely different from other festivals. There are hundreds of environmental film festivals, and that's not us. We are really the only pure wildlife conservation film festival. And we've elected to have these events in large urban areas simply because of the disconnect with nature, whether we've had it in Beijing or Sao Paulo or places in Europe, we find that the people living in these large urban areas are just not aware of the wildlife, the biodiversity that is around them. Most people in New York City have never been to the Catskills or the Adirondacks, which is just a short drive from Manhattan. And there you can see wildlife year-round, all four seasons. And that's one of the purposes of the festival. I mean, our mission is very straightforward, very simple, to inform, engage, and inspire wildlife conservation through the power of film and media. And we continue to build our global partnerships worldwide. We'll be returning to Monterey, Mexico, probably in late May or June for our third annual event there. We'll be in Rome and Naples, Italy in late September. And we're in negotiation with the United Arab Emirates about doing a film festival there in the Middle East for very late 2023 or early 2024. And through these partnerships, we get the word out. And that is our message. Indeed, it really is international. You have a large footprint, if you don't mind the expression. It's really amazing. And that engagement, which is, as you say, so important because those of us, we have to work in cities for whatever reason. We cluster around cities and it makes us forget what's happening around the world, which is the biodiversity crisis, the extinction crisis. And we think because we're omnivores, we can eat anything and we can more or less adapt by taking other animals' habitats and resources. So you can just explain a little 
available because a lot of people don't really even understand exactly how extinction comes about. Yeah, I mean, extinction can come from a variety of issues. Certainly over the last 12,000 years, the climate has changed. We went from the Pleistocene period to what, where we are now called the Holocene and the Ice Age megafauna, the woolly mammoths, the woolly rhinoceros, the ground sloths, saber-toothed cats have all disappeared. That could be for a number of reasons, perhaps some which we'll never know because we weren't there. That could have been climate change, could have been another factor, but they never had countered before, which is human hunting. Today, we look at extinction and there are species going extinct every day, unfortunately. And they are attributed to deforestation, to the bushmeat trade, to overhunting, to poaching, to change in their environment, climate change. I'll bring up a few examples that are dear to my heart because these are species that are, I have studied. So if you're familiar with marine mammals, there is one called the vaquita, which is the smallest cetacean on earth, only about this big, fully grown, about three and a half feet. When I was studying them in graduate school in 2000, there was about 675 vaquita remaining, which was an alarming number because the population was crashing. Today, there are eight, eight vaquita left on the planet, none in captivity, and it's not because of overhunting or poaching. It's because of they have been caught as bycatch in the shrimp industry and the illegal fishing of Totoba. They're the only one of the few marine mammals that are not migratory. They stick in the northern corner of the Sea of Cortez, Baja, California. And the governments have tried a number of issues, giving money to the fishermen to stop shrimp fishing. But what they did with that money is just buy bigger nets, bigger boats, faster boats, which resulted into more vaquitas dying. And they simply just drown in the fishing nets because as a marine mammal, they have to surface to breathe. I'm like a fish, which could stay in a net for a period of time as long as its gills are moving. Another animal that I look at is the Sumatran rhino. Back when I was in undergraduate school, there were 880 Sumatran rhino left on earth some here in the United States in a captive breeding program. Today, there is an estimated 45 to 50 Sumatran rhino left on Earth. And that has primarily been due to deforestation, habitat loss, urban development, and two particular countries who, quite frankly, can't take their heads out of their backside and make decisions to save the species, which it still can be saved because there's enough genetic diversity, unlike the vaquita where there's not. When you come to mammals, you get to a certain point where the number's too low to have a breeding program that is genetically diverse and prevent inbreeding. So the Sumatran rhino can be saved. It's a question whether the governments of Malaysia and Indonesia will work together to save the species. And then we have other factors. Frogs, amphibians worldwide are at a crisis because of fungal disease, as are bats with white nose syndrome. And then we come to our world's oceans. I'm not so much concerned about sea level rise. The sea level has been rising for 12,000 years. That's not an issue. That's exactly going to affect humans more than marine life. We built cities right on the edge of the ocean. Here in the East Coast of the United States, from Miami to Savannah, to Charleston, to Atlantic City and Boston, we built right up on the ocean. And as sea level rises, those cities will disappear or change abruptly, as we see in, in Venice, Italy, where you have to go from block to block by, by boat and you can't walk because of the sea level rise. The thing that concerns me the most with our oceans is 
the toxic chemicals that we have been dumping in these oceans for nearly 80 years. Plastic pollution is a serious threat, far more than we can think of. And it's not just the plastic we see on the surface, it's the microplastics that we cannot see. And that is affecting the food chain, which eventually affects us as humans. It goes into the phytoplankton, which is eaten by crustaceans, smaller fish, eaten by bigger fish, then eaten by commercial fish, which we harvest for our food supply. And there are some nations, such as Japan and others in the Pacific Ocean, that don't have the agricultural industry because they don't have the landmass, such as the United States, as farms, cattle, and beef. They primarily rely on their food sources coming from the ocean, and this affects human health. So that's another concern. We have seen here on the East Coast of the United States in the last two years, over 150 humpback whales wash up on the beaches of New Jersey and New York. Two weeks ago, we had nine bottlenose dolphins wash up on a beach in New Jersey, and something is causing this. It has yet to be determined because not all the necropsies have come back yet with results, but I very much doubt it. It's wind farms. It could perhaps be deep sea sonar testing by some Navy, whether it's ours or in the foreign Navy. Or another theory is it could be toxic chemicals that are leaching from these steel containers that were dumped 80 years ago, and now they're breaking down and they're releasing harmful bacteria that is killing marine life. That is a concern, not just for marine mammals, but for humans as well. So extinction is caused by a variety of problems, some natural. But right now in the course of Earth's history, we are more of a problem causing extinction, meaning humans, than any other factor. And what your film festival does, and the various films which really focus in on that personal story, the wildlife, and also the human connection, those personal relationships, you bring us up close because we can't always travel. It's not always even ethical to travel in terms of putting carbon back into the environment. And there are just so many moving stories. You have an image of pangolin in the background. And there's that very moving film that was shown in your festival, narrated by Jimon Hunsu, the Academy Award-nominated actor. But I just want to know a little bit about your journey. It's not a straightforward path. You'd worked in Natural History Museum. Just tell us a little bit about that. Running a wildlife film festival was not something I had ever planned on. It wasn't part of my studies, my career path. I did work, volunteer at a very early age in natural history museums in Philadelphia and New York, then eventually became an employee and then studied evolutionary biology, environmental science in undergraduate school, and then marine science in graduate school. And I wound up working as a teacher, teaching in middle school, high school, science, marine biology. And this was down in Naples, Florida, where I expected to spend, quite frankly, the rest of my life. Once I had moved there, but things had changed. I had rekindled a relationship with my undergraduate college sweetheart, and I decided to move back to New York. And teaching opportunities were not readily available as they were down south. So I went into academic publishing for a while. And that was a good life. It was a corporate life. It was you know, a great deal of, of compensation and perks, but it's not what I wanted to do. And I guess this was March of 2010. Well, I'll go back a little bit earlier. So between Christmas and New Year's of 2009, a publisher I had worked for laid off 14 vice presidents in one week, my boss being one of them. So the writing was on the wall. We knew what was coming and we knew we were next. So I had taken my team out to San Francisco for an educational convention. That was part of our duties. And we were laid off via an email. 
And they're not even the courtesy of a phone call and basically just say, when you come back next week, clear out your desk. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I cleared my office out the day that Dave left. And they're like, that was four months ago. I'm like, you have no idea what's going on. Your corporate culture sucks. You don't know what your employees are doing and nor do you care. So uh, I told my team, enjoy the rest of the time in San Francisco, go down to you know, Pier 14 and see the sea lions. And I decided to be as defiant as possible. And I bought a, a used car on my company Amex card and sent them a letter via my attorney saying you'll be reimbursed within 30 days. And I elected not to fly back, but to drive home across country. I knew that I had the time. I didn't have a job to go home to. And I stopped in a number of national parks and I had this finding yourself, reinventing yourself moment. And I stopped in one town in Montana where they had a small film festival related to nature. And I said, it's a shame there's nothing like this on the East Coast, nor in a large metropolitan area. So uh, I had come back to New York City and I was a member of a club there. And one evening I was sitting with Sylvia Earle, marine biologist, oceanographer, and the late Jim Fowler, who used to be the host of Mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom. I'm like, do it. I'm like, do what? Create your own film festival. Why not? You have nothing to lose. And that was March of 2010. And WCFF was launched in Sag Harbor in September. And, you know, the first years, of course, were very difficult. Being brand new to the industry, it was challenging getting filmmakers to submit films, getting funding, which we really didn't have any real funding probably until year seven, to be honest with you. I had to fund this on my own for the first seven years. And even today, I still do not take a salary uh, with the WCFS because our funding has improved. It's not near to the point where I can do everything I want for the film festival, for the filmmakers, and there's still not enough for a, a salary compensatory with living in Manhattan. So uh, we continue to grow, continue to evolve. These global partnerships are helpful. And uh, there have been a number of challenges, I said. I mean, the biggest challenge right now that I have is I had the biggest flight of my life. In September of 2021, I was diagnosed with stage three liver cancer. And unfortunately, it's progressed now to where it's stage four. And it's something that I have to fight with every day. Today, I have a lot of energy. I feel good. Some days I do not get out of bed. And unfortunately, the cancer that I have is contracted by maybe 1% of the population. It's cancer of the liver bile ducts. So there's not a lot of research on it. There's not a lot of studies on it. My physicians, they're very candid with me. They cannot cure this. So I don't know how much time I have, whether it's five months, five years, or 50 more years. What they're doing right now is holding it at bay and keeping me alive in the hope that some new drug will come out in six months or a year that will kill it. And my next door neighbor happens to be a cancer researcher at the University of Penn. He's like, look, 10 years ago, you would have been dead within six months. Now we're coming out with new drugs every six months. And he's like, it's not unrealistic that maybe within five years, we'll have a pill that you take and it's gone within a matter of weeks. So I have to remain optimistic. The film festival drives me to have a positive attitude and to stay alive. I try to work as much as I can. I don't work the 60 hours a week that I used to. I work maybe, oh, eight at best. The other thing we would like to establish, and I keep on saying we, but all too often it's me, myself, and I, but is to establish a foundation. And that would be the Wildlife Conservation Film Foundation. And how that would separate itself from the film festival is the film festival will remain intact. It would be an umbrella event 
under the foundation, which would be a 501c3 nonprofit. And the foundation would be to provide funding to wildlife and nature filmmakers across the globe to go out and make these documentary films and independent filmmakers. Those that are not associated with a network that have unlimited funding or a great source of funding, they don't need funding from a foundation. And there are literally hundreds of filmmakers that contact me each year about getting funding. And I wish I could fund them all because many of them are very important projects on endangered species or ecosystem. And the only thing that is preventing them from making this film is the lack of funding. And we know film is very powerful. Some of the films we have shown over the last 13 years have actually influenced policy in countries, banning certain species from being hunted, protecting forests or marine areas as a result of a certain prime minister or prince or princess or other high-level person of authority seeing a film about this particular subject in their own country that they were not aware of, and they decided that, you know, we have to preserve this. So we're very proud of that. We had a number of films that have, in fact, made a significant impact and made change. And we hope that once the foundation is established, that will continue and perhaps even increase. That's really amazing. I know the feeling of a passion project you're putting in your time, but I know the feeling of that. Tell me about some of those inspiring figures that you've met along the way. Oh, they've just devoted their whole lives to it. They still find optimism, like yourself. And then some of those films that really touched your mind and your heart and had that ripple effect. Yeah, I mean, I've been fortunate over the last 13 years to meet some of the world's leading conservationists, Dr. Sylvia Earle, Dr. Barute Gaudicus, David Attenborough, Jane Goodall, His Royal Highness Prince Khaled bin Sultan from Saudi Arabia, who came to the film festival in, I think it was 2014, where we showed some films from his foundation. And there have been a number of others, award-winning filmmakers and a number of celebrities that have come to the film festival. I think when Dr. Goldicus came, she brought Academy Award winner James Cromwell to the film festival. We've had other celebrities show up. From Paul Giamani to Alec Baldwin to Sigourney Weaver, all which have a passion for, if not saving wildlife, for the environment. And uh, I have found them very humble, very easy to speak to, and I'm immensely grateful that they took the time to come to WCFS from their busy schedule. And we hope to build more relationships. One of our board members is the very talented and gifted actress, Holly Marie Combs who was, I believe, on Pretty Little Liars on HBO. And back in the late 90s and 2000s, we were with Melissa Milano and Shannon Doherty, about three sisters who were witches. Charmed. Charmed. So she was one of the major characters on that. And then some other figures, Captain Paul Watson, the co-founder of Greenpeace, and She Shepherd, who has now started his own foundation, the Paul Watson Foundation. So this is part of the relationship building. Some other figures that I can think of is Sir Ian Redmond, was former ambassador for the environment for the United Nations, Born Free Organization. Virginia McKenna actually came to the film festival. I think it was 2013 or 2014. Came here to New York and we presented her with a Lifetime Achievement Award for the work that her and her husband had done to establish the Born Free Foundation. And I'll actually see her son next month for an event in New York City for Earth Day. Born Free USA is having an event, and I think Will Travers may be there. So, And I hope to be there. Of course, it all depends how I feel. So hopefully that'll be a good couple of three days where 
because right now I'm not living in New York. I'm in Pennsylvania getting my medical treatment. So I'll be in the city, I think, April 20th or 23rd, if anyone wants to meet who's listening to this podcast. I'll be in Manhattan for those four days and hoping to meet anyone willing to get involved either in the film festival or the foundation. Well, you certainly have an indomitable spirit and energy, and I can imagine the frustrations too, because I know that you are a scuba diver and you've traveled and made your own documentaries too, and that light shows through you. So I think that that's just something that is a gift that when we have a mission and purpose like you have, it keeps you going, keeps your mind on what's important, right? Yes. It gives me a purpose. In what I do, I do not call it a job. I do not even call it a career. I call it life's mission. And it does keep me going. I mean, there are days and there have been weeks that have gone by where I just wanted to give up. I said, yeah, no more chemo. I'm finished. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I don't want to do this anymore. And I've had, you know, friends and some of the conservation partners I just mentioned, you know, give me a call or an email and just give me a good swift kick in the ass and say, you've got to fight this. You can't give up. And because of them, I haven't given up. You know, until my doctors say where, you know, we've come to that time, I'm not going to give up. And this is one of the reasons why I want to establish this foundation is to give me another purpose for living. But not just that. It's not just about me. It's because of the hundreds of films that can be made annually, whether they're short or feature, from independent filmmakers that would certainly make an impact on saving a species and or an ecosystem. And when I am gone, there will be others that will run this in my place. I hope that's not for another 50 years, but we'll see. There are certain things I can and cannot control, but hopefully it will keep me alive for a long time. We can do quite a bit more. What's the impact that the film has created that you think is the most special or unforgettable to you? Well, we had one film on whale sharks back in the early days of the film festival that was shown to members of the royal family of Thailand. At that time, I didn't even know Thailand had a royal family. Whale sharks were still being hunted off their waters. As a result of them watching the film, within six months, the hunting of whale sharks was banned off their coastal waters. So we were very proud of that. During the Obama administration, we were invited to a delegation to present information to Chinese officials that were invited here. And one of the things we did was discuss the elephant poaching crisis, which at that time was as many as 30 to 35,000 elephants a year that were being killed throughout Africa. We showed a number of short films to this high-level delegation, and it was yet amazing and both sad how some of them did not realize that the ivory was coming from dead elephants. They thought the ivory would just fall out of their face like deer antlers. And as a result, I believe we made a very positive impact because three months later, we were contacted by the CCP, the Chinese government, and invited us to bring the film festival to, to China where we hosted events in Beijing and in the city of Dali in Yunnan province in southwestern China. And then COVID hit and other factors have prevented us from going back, but we will go back. We still are in touch with friends and partners we made there. They want us to come back. So when the time is right, we'll return to China and, and co-host an event with conservation organizations there. And in the meantime, we'll build continuing partnerships. Again, make an impact these films to governments worldwide that will create change. Mr. Gervais has revealed the beauty of wildlife 
while also highlighting the pressing environmental challenges that the Earth is facing. Living on the same planet, we all have the responsibility to protect the environment. This conservation has made me realize that wildlife conservation should not only be the duty or the right of certain specialists, but rather of every individual. With it being an essential part of our lives, we can all make a contribution to the conservation efforts in our own ways. Before founding the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival and becoming a documentary film producer, Mr. Chavez had taken on different roles, and his career path was not predetermined. Life is a series of unexpected twists and turns, and these turning points are gifts that we receive that offer new opportunities and challenges. It is crucial to keep the flame of our passion burning within us, to remember why we started in our journeys, no matter where they may take us. As a film and journalism student in college, I am inspired by Mr. Gervais' experiences. When art and social power come together, they generate an immensely powerful force. Film as a medium can not only communicate voices and attitudes, but also attract responses from people far and wide. The Wildlife Conservation Film Festival has made people more aware of the serious issues of the environment, while the Wildlife Conservation Film Foundation will support more aspiring individuals to make film in the future. I admire Mr. Gervais' determination and dedication to the larger community. Creating such a platform is a challenging and rewarding process. With persistence, we all have the potential to achieve responses from afar and ultimately make everything worthwhile. In the future, I hope to become an artist with a strong sense of social responsibility, just like Mr. Jovey. Now back to the interview. I really admire all the things you did because I am also from China. And、uh, I'm glad that we have all those events that inspire people to care more about environmental conservation. Because for film, it is an artistic form of expression. What do you think is the most important elements for a film for you? For instance, a type of cells, like whether it's the artistic form of cinematography or it's more of the rhetoric, like the topic or the meanings of the implications. What is the thing that matters to you most? Well, there are a number of factors that we look into when we review a film, and I dare say there's not one specific that determines whether a film is or is not accepted. Some you've already mentioned: the cinematography, the story, the narration, the overall message of the film, and、uh, these factors are all weighed in. And from there, we decide whether this is a suitable fit. Now, that's not to say there are some excellent films that are submitted to WCFF, and we choose not to screen them, not because it's not a good film, but they're more appropriate for an environmental film festival than a wildlife conservation film festival. Sometimes we'll get films on agriculture or soil science or farming, and again, these are immensely important issues, specifically right now. But that's not wildlife conservation. That's more of an environmental film. So we'll pass that along to some environmental films where we have、uh, communication with, and I'll explain to the filmmaker that you know it's no fault of their own that this film is not being accepted. It's just not our specific genre, and, and we are very、uh, specific. You know, we are a unique film festival that we're really the only one that does what we do. There are other wildlife film festivals, one in Western United States, one in England, but they're not geared for the public. 
you're more of a private industry event for the networks. We pride ourselves that anyone can attend, whether you're a teacher or a student, person just walking down the street, sees the signage on the marquee of the theater. So we welcome everyone and encourage everyone to attend because it's not just about film as entertainment, but it's also informative education. So those are the factors we look into when we select the film. And there are a few more, but I just can't think of at the moment. But we will never turn down a filmmaker and saying, we're not going to review your film. We're very grateful for anyone who wants to submit a film. Never have I said, no, I don't have the time or the interest to watch this. Everyone's film is reviewed and taken into consideration. And then some years we may have 10 films on one particular species, 10 films on sharks, 10 films on rhinos, and we can't show all of them. We'll have to decide just one or two because we want to make room for the other 100 films that we show during the course of the week. And that's why we started the online film festival back in 2021. Well, we had to then because of COVID have choice. We couldn't be in the theater, but we'll continue with an online event after the event in New York is over. And we'll show films that didn't fit into the schedule for the event in New York City. And then, as Mia said, not everyone can travel to New York for a film festival, whether it's just for two days or for seven or 10 days. So the online platform gives people worldwide an opportunity to watch the films, listen to the filmmakers and the conservationists. Sometimes we'll do a live event via Zoom where they can ask questions. Sometimes it's pre-recorded. But again, it gives people the opportunity to enjoy this, even though they can't be present uh, physically at the event. Yes. Back to the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival, I noticed that there is a award-winning short film called Dream, the animation film. And I am very curious because considering your experience and identity as a documentary producer, why do you choose animation as the form to present this short video? Well... Animation is increasing, and we've seen a number of films, both wildlife and environmental-related, that are an animation platform. The history of Dream is I was contacted by an advertising agency a number of years ago that had a client who was an animation company that wanted to do a short animation on wildlife. So we met and we discussed how long this would be and what the content would be. And they said, you know, choose several species that are impacted right now. And we chose the baby harp seal because Canada, in their great wisdom, decided to start hunting baby seals again in eastern Canada. Rhino was chosen because at that time, rhino poaching was the highest level it had ever been in history. I think more than 2,000 rhinos were killed that year just in South Africa alone, not even counting the other countries. We chose the humpback whale because some imbecile within the United States government decided that there were enough humpback whales now that we could start resuming whale hunting in this country. So that was the other chosen. And the pelican was chosen because of the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which had devastating consequences. And we still have those consequences today. The oil is still there, just under the sand. It's not like all the oil has been cleaned up. We were very fortunate that that animation was presented at cons that year, and it won two awards, a Golden Lion and a Silver Lion Award. And I was not even aware the film was submitted. I came out of the subway, and my phone started ringing, and 
People are like, congratulations. These are great awards. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What award did we win? And I'm like, you just won not one, but two awards at the Cannes Film Festival. I'm like, I didn't submit a film at the Cannes Film Festival, but the ad agency did. And it was a pleasant surprise and got us a lot of attention. And I have wanted to do a sequel or a series of sequels to that animation. That film, that animation, without proper advertising or promotion, has received nearly 500 million views worldwide. So if we did it in a different format where we got sponsors, we're confident it could easily reach several billion worldwide if it is promoted properly. So there are ideas I had that either start a sequel from the end of that particular film or just pick four new species. And there are so many species and ecosystems in peril that we could do this probably once a year. I just have to find the right partners who are willing to help out with this. And that animation actually was very expensive back in... I guess it was 2017. You know, I was told that animation cost about $175,000 just for a three-minute production. Obviously, now with technology and the way the animation industry is, has evolved, it would perhaps be much cheaper, but you know, I don't know. I'm not the animator. I just basically wrote the story, was the producer, the director, and I would have to get animation partners and promotional partners to do this the way we would want to do it for the future. It was so interesting. The animation was a good choice because it was very realistic, but it allowed for a warning note, obviously, but it also allowed for a certain hopefulness because you could create certain things with the light and marry it in and have this uplifting music as well that could leave the door open for us in you know, changing behavior. Yeah, I mean, the film started happy-go-lucky in the beginning. The baby rhino playing with its mother, the two seals, frolicked ice, and then things changed. Once that storm came in and the boat was seen, and then people are like, where's the other seal? And I'm like, well, needs to get that out. And then, of course, the baby rhino over its mother without her horn, the whale being harpooned. So we thought about a sequel where it would start with, if you remember the end of the film, the seal hunter has a tool that's called a hack -a pick which is used to club a baby seal. So what I thought about was right before he lowers it, you hear a voice in the background, don't you dare. And there's this little girl with pigtails and freckles in her face, and she's got her hands on her hips staring down the hunter and then behind her is 10 people behind her is 100 people and then a thousand and they're all there to protect the seal and then the mother rhino is rescued and brought back to health and the horn will grow back so that was one potential sequel or others that we discussed was just doing four different species the makita being one of them orangutan in the deforested region was another. I don't want to get too much into that. I don't want to be stealing my idea, but you know, we would have to find the right animation and sponsors to do this. And uh, you know, I would very much like to continue with that animation project, whether it's annual or every other year, but it's been too long since the dream came out and we have not moved forward in, in doing another project compatible with it. Yes. Well, I mean, it's apt for being a continuing series because unfortunately there are just a number of endangered species that you can't fit them all into one short film. We have success stories too, where some species have been brought back from the brink or are even thriving. It's imbalanced, right? And I want to mention also your latest film, Saving the Last Tuskers. Just tell us about the evolution of that project and why you chose among the many endangered species to focus on that. Sure. So Saving the Last Tuskers is in partnership with the young Kenyan filmmaker, Tuku Kuriko, 
And you know, he had an idea about doing a project in Savo, and there are actually two Savo, Savo East, Savo West. And you know, one time there were perhaps hundreds or several thousand elephants classified as big tuskers. And that is an elephant whose each tusk is over 100 pounds. And today, because the elephant population has gone from 1.2 million in 1985 to somewhere around 275,000 today in Africa, there are believed to be as few as 18 to 20 big tuskers left on the entire continent of Africa, not just in one country. And these big tuskers create a balance within the elephant kingdom. They're sort of the grandfather. They keep the younger males in check. They're the dominant figure in elephant society, apart from the matriarch who takes care of the young and other female elephants and the young males that stay in the herds. The big tuskers are generally solitary, but when there's a gathering of males, they keep, how shall I say this, law and order in place. Whether it's the other elephants are afraid of them or they're just overpowered, but the big tuskers are there for a reason. And that's for a balance within elephant society. And because there are so few of them left, Thuku and I decided that this would be an important film. Our next project might be on an endangered analog species in Africa. Another project is vultures. Vultures in Africa are disappearing rapidly, and it's mainly because they're being poisoned by farmers, other people that simply just don't like them. But vultures are an incredibly important part of the ecosystem. They're a natural balance in fighting off disease, getting rid of carrion, dead animals. Without vultures, you would have perhaps an ecosystem collapse. So that is another film we want to make, providing, again, we get the foundation established and we get the funding. So anyone out there who wants to be part of these films as a producer or associate producer, please, please get in touch. There are no shortage of opportunities in films we have in the pipeline that we want made. Indeed. And those are some ecosystems that many of us will not be intimately aware of in that it's quite exotic, very important for those ecosystems. But even though our behaviors distantly influence that through what support or what their local governments support, but right within the cities, you have a recent film that was in your festival about bees, about pollinators. So that's vital for all of our survival. Bees, when their habitats are threatened, no matter where you are in the world, just talk about some of those more domestic animals who touch our lives closely. Well, bees as pollinators are, again, as you just mentioned, immensely important to the ecosystem. Without pollination, much of our food supply would not exist. So bees are very important to agriculture for human beings. And bees are disappearing. A number of bee species are endangered or have disappeared from certain parts of this country. Uh, mainly it is believed, not just because of habitat loss, but because of pesticides and other chemicals used in agriculture that is killing off bees. And it's ironic, the thing that we're using to protect the farmland is killing the very source it pollinates the crops that we need. I just saw my first bumblebee two days ago. As it's getting warmer earlier throughout the year. It's unheard of to hear or see a bumblebee in late March in this part of the country. But there it was. Bumblebees, you know, are unique from honeybees. They don't live in colonies. They actually burrow into the ground, and there they 
stay when they're not flying around. But honeybees are disappearing. Bumblebees are disappearing. Other bee species are disappearing. And the contributing factors are bereaved because of the pesticides and other chemicals that are used, killing them off. And it's not just bees. I remember as a young lad driving through the country, your windshield would be splattered with insects. You don't see that anymore. Insects are just disappearing rapidly. You see very, very few insects. What I mainly see are flies, if anything. They seem to be increasing. And ticks are out much earlier now because we didn't have a harsh winter. I think we had the second mildest winter in the United States recorded history. We were about 15 degrees above normal in this part of the country during winter. And, but no, the insect population is, has disappeared. I don't see ladybugs like I used to. I don't see prey mantises like I used to. There are a number of species that are just, they may be out there, but we just don't see them. And this is all contributed to human interference. Yeah. And that's the big thing that I remember from my childhood is I hardly ever see bumblebees now. And then I didn't fully understand the difference between the cultivated honeybee and the wild or the native bee and how they're competing in many ways. And so we have to, that's part of that biodiversity is about allowing them to have habitats because they're important because the honeybees don't pollinate everything. There's this variety of pollinators. And to that point of a loss of insects right into our soil, we're losing soil fertility, I think it, it's echoing the loss of species too. soil fertility at the rate of 0.3% annually, which is a lot if you think about 100 years. You might be able to give a statistic about the number of species that are endangered and that we envisage might be lost or at risk of being lost. I think in the latest statistic that over the last 40 years, we have lost 60% of our biodiversity of species, both terrestrial and marine. And that's a startling figure. But a lot of these species are the unseen and forgotten. It could be an insect. It could be a plant, which doesn't get the attention, say, of a whale or a rhino or an elephant. That, you know, is a larger-than-life figure of it. You know, everyone, you can't miss that. But a lot of species that are gone or close to being gone are ones that just don't get the media attention, so to speak. And the fact now where we have endangered plants and flowers, endangered trees, is really a startling statistic. That's something that I did not think would happen. I mean, most recently, koalas in Australia were put on the endangered species list. I remember, again, as a young lad, there were millions of koalas in Australia. And the fact now that we're even discussing the possible risk of extinction for koalas is just mind-boggling. That is something never I thought in my lifetime. I would hear because who does not love a koala? It's one of the most lovable, adorable animals that's out there. But between habitat loss, human encroachment, disease, fires, which were far more devastating than we anticipated, it's estimated that 3 billion animals were killed in the wildfires, I guess that was two, two or three summers ago, on a kangaroo island, which is another potential film project we're looking at. There were 65,000 koalas. Now that number is down to less than 3,000 in just a period of about eight years. So to say that you know, the earth is not in trouble is just plain ignorance and stubbornness. Uh, one does not have to be a PhD or a scientist or a filmmaker to realize that we're moving in the wrong path. And we're moving in a path that's not just going to affect biodiversity. It's going to affect us as the human species. Eventually, it's going to come to the point where we're going to find ourselves in trouble. 
as you said, the soil is being degraded. That will result in the food that we can grow, crops will survive, air quality, water quality. And regardless of where you live, whether it's China or Chile or the United States, we breathe the same air, we walk on the same soil, we drink the same water. It all comes into a harmonious or what was a harmonious balance. Now that balance has been disrupted and is threatened worldwide. So what do you enjoy most in terms of the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival as well as the films that you produced? What do I enjoy the most? Uh, seeing people smile and be happy when they leave the film festival after they've watched a film. Now we've had some films that have brought tears to people's eyes, but that does get the message out. There's a reason why we'll show those films. Also, the relationships we've built over the years, reading, fascinating, interesting people, whether they're a filmmaker, a conservationist, a citizen scientist, whoever they may be. To meet some of these people is something that some people just don't have access to. Them. And we're very fortunate that we've had that happen in our history. And that's something that makes me happy. And, you know, I'm happy when people reach out, whether it's to submit a film or to discuss a potential partnership that, you know, the name WCFF, Wildlife Conservation Film Festival, is getting out there. And that is perhaps a household name among wildlife filmmakers. I would certainly be happier if we had more funding. And we could establish this foundation. That would put a big smile on my face. But we're not quite there yet. Maybe there'll be some generous benefactors who will say, we believe in your mission and we want to make this happen. That would make me very happy. I'd love to talk about your educational outreach, thinking to the future generations. I mean, that's what it's about, preserving wildlife and thinking to future generations. So the educational outreach, you know, a lot has changed since COVID because of the lockdown and school accessibility. But prior to that, we went into a number of, of secondary and post-secondary schools, which in this country would be middle, high school, and colleges. And we did presentations, whether it be screening a film or bringing a speaker there. The other thing that we have done is to ask some of our filmmakers donate their time to producing an introductory to wildlife filmmaking workshop. And that's something we're hoping to do in the Middle East with, again, their students, because unfortunately, there's not a wildlife filmmakers in that region but they want that to change. So there's a number of filmmakers I've contacted and said, would you consider putting together a one or multiple day workshop or course to introduce secondary students, whether it's high school or college, to wildlife filmmaking? So that would be considered part of our educational outreach. And in the past, we've done some events at national parks, national wildlife refuges. Anyone visiting that day or those few days any member of the public would be able to, again, watch films, hear a speaker. So these are apart from the actual film festival that takes place. These are what we consider our, our education events. Yes. And as you think about the future and education and some teachers or collaborators that are important for you, I, I know also your great-grandfather, he was at a Museum National d'Histoire in Paris, just down the road from me, actually. So as you think back about those who have taught you and whose message you're passing on, what would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? We have just one planet and we have to preserve this planet because there's nowhere else for us to go if we muck things up, so to speak. There's science fiction, stories of Star Trek, of traveling the stars to different solar systems is perhaps hundreds, 500 years away from now. So we have to work with what we have, and that is preserving the biodiversity, not just for aesthetic reasons, not just because it looks nice, 
because it will affect the livelihood of humans. This generation now, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. The gentleman you mentioned was one of my great-great-grandfathers, who I never met, was deceased long before I was born, but was an influencing factor of natural history. And perhaps that's where I inherited these, you know, these beliefs from, those genes that we had even have a species of whale named after our family, the Gervais-beaked whale. So uh, the younger generation, I think, is more prone to environmental issues and preserving biodiversity. You know, there's a difference between activism and protesting and just yelling and screaming and crying, which gets nothing accomplished because no one wants to hear that. Government leaders, whether they're in Asia, Europe, North South America, are simply just not interested in that. We need people to actually take action, to get their degrees in science, to be a contributing factor to the issues that are at hand, that are problematic. And while some activists do get their message across in a positive way, people always say to me, oh, you're an environmentalist. Like, no, I am not an environmentalist. I'm a conservationist. There's a big difference between the two. But getting back to our educational outreach, Cecilia, I think you mentioned you, you are from China. When we were in Dali in Yunnan province, we had thousands of students, probably over 10,000 in the course of a week, come from different high schools and universities throughout the province and surrounding province came to the, to the film festival. And I brought some handout materials and they were gone within the first half an hour of the first day. So clearly there was an interest there about the ongoing issues of wildlife and biodiversity, not just in China, but worldwide. So that was encouraging to see that many younger people, the younger generation, have a genuine and sincere interest about what's going on. And I hope that will continue and increase worldwide because that's the only way things are going to change. I, as an individual, can only do so much. But our future leaders who are in middle school, high school now, whether they become leaders in the corporate industry or they're members of philanthropic or royal families who will be in the position to make change, they're the ones we need to get on board ship and to make what we've discussed today a reality, not just talk, but to take action. And I'm encouraged that I've seen younger leaders move in that path and in that direction, and hopefully they'll continue to do so and others will follow. Well, you say you're just an individual and we can only do so much, but you have done an incredible amount. So thank you, Christopher J. Gervais and the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival and hopefully soon Film Foundation. Thank you for your important work and the hundreds of films you bring around the world every year so that they can make an impact and we can understand the consequences of loss of biodiversity, how we can protect endangered species, their habitats. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you for having me. And, and I hope our paths, we will meet in the future, whether it be in New York or China or somewhere else. So I hope we have the opportunity to meet face to face in one day. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Yamashowski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Cecilia Nye with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Cecilia Nye. Digital media coordinator was Simon Myers. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.